I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This episode of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 tier and above supporters of Parallax Views on patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And those supporters get a producer's credit shoutout on each and every edition of the show. So producer's credit shoutouts to Mark, Arlen, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Brian, The Warner, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Ork, Black Tuna, Nathan, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace, Galen, Chance, Justin, Nick W., and The Mere Project, M-E-E-R. Thank you again to all of those $10 tier and above supporters on my Patreon page. You can join them at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. It's those producers credit supporters that can really help this show keep going, and their support is very much appreciated. Pretty camp blood, ain't ya? God damn it, Ralph, get out of here. Go on, get. Leave people alone. You'll never come back again. Shut up, Ralph. It's got a death curse. Hey there, Parallax News listeners. Believe it or not, it's been over a decade since moviegoers have been able to return to Camp Crystal Lake, aka Camp Blood the stomping grounds of the murderous maniac Jason Voorhees in theaters. Due to a copyright dispute, the Friday the 13th franchise hasn't been seen on the big screen in a number of years. In recent years, however, dedicated fans of the hockey mask-wearing, machete-wielding Jason Voorhees have stepped up to the plate to fill the Friday the 13th movie void with their very own fan films, some of which, thanks to technology and passion, have a professional sheen that rivals not only other fan films, but arguably even a number of the official entries in the Friday the 13th series. Case in point, with Friday the 13th Vengeance and its recently released sequel, Friday the 13th Vengeance Part 2 Bloodlines, both of which you can view right now on YouTube. These two feature-length fan films act as sequels to the fan-favorite Friday the 13th Part 6, Jason Lives, and delve deep into the Voorhees mythos by delving into the character of Jason's father, Elias. 
featuring such Friday the 13th alumni as C.J. Graham, Tom McLaughlin, Darcy DeMoss, and Tom Matthews. The Friday the 13th Vengeance fan films offer not only the carnage candy that the franchise has become known for, but also a completely new take on the Jason Voorhees saga. Joining us to discuss Friday the 13th Vengeance Part 2 Bloodlines is the film's director, Jason Brooks, who also wrote and starred in the feature as Jason Voorhees. Trust me when I say both of these movies feel like much more than just fan films. And do yourself a favor by watching both on YouTube this Halloween season after hearing our conversation. So, with all that being said, let's get right to it with Jason Brooks, director, writer, and star of Friday the 13th Vengeance Part 2, Bloodlines. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm really excited to have on, Jason Brooks, uh, the man behind the new Friday the 13th fan film, Friday the 13th Vengeance Part 2 Bloodlines, in which he doubles not only as the director, but also as Jason Voorhees himself. How are you doing? I'm doing good. How are you doing? Very good. Very good. And uh, this, I, I hesitate to call Vengeance Part 2 uh, a fan film because I think when people talk about fan films they're thinking of these movies that came out in like the you know I would say like 90s early 2000s uh, this looks like a very professional film and I I want to get into how that was achieved but first uh, maybe you could tell my listeners uh, a little bit about how uh, Friday the 13th Vengeance 2 came about because uh, you before this there was obviously Vengeance Part 1 and that even I think began as a different movie initially called Mythos yeah so about four years ago, a little more maybe, um, there was a team putting together a film called Friday the 13th Mythos and uh, directed by Jeremy Brown at the time. And he basically wanted to tell uh, a continuation of part six. And um, I heard about the role, I auditioned for it and got the part of Jason. And then that was originally meant to be just a kind of a short, maybe 20 to 40 minute story. But then the fans wanted more. Um, and so we we kind of took a step back, uh, re reinvented it, and turned it into Vengeance, and decided to expand the story, make it a full feature, and tell the story of Elias Voorhees, Jason's father. So we reached out to C.J. Graham, who plays Jason in Part Six, asked him if he'd be the father in this, um, play Jason's father, because who better? And he agreed. And then we talked to Steve Dash, who played Jason in Part Two, to be our sheriff. Um, and then we we got everyone together and made the story. Um, and that film, Vengeance. And then after the success of that one, um, a lot of people really loved it and wanted more. So they kept asking, kept asking. But the crew was very tired and exhausted from making the first one after a couple of years. And the director handed the reins over to me and said, go for it. If you want to do it, here it is. It's yours. Um, take it. And the fans just kept coming and kept coming, saying, please do it. So talked to the team and said, should we do it? Let's do it. And here we are. Um, we uh, put the part two together and um, 
just took everything we learned from the first one, took everything, all of our, our talents, combined them together and came up with uh, what you see now. What was the biggest uh, learning aspect you got from part one that you applied to part two? What did you maybe learn from the first film? Yeah, so when you when you go back after you complete the film and you watch it several times like we have, you kind of like have your own things where you're like, oh, if I could do it again, I would have done that different. Maybe I would have shot it differently this way or we would have lit it better this way. Um, or next time I want to kind of include the story or we filmed so much, we, it was like almost three hours of footage in the original cut that we had to whittle it down in half to an hour and a half. And so we lost some of our character building. We lost some of our stocking and lead up and build up because we had to tell these other parts. So um, we we learned basically like people want more storytelling and character building and more stocking, more suspense, more build up. And um, that's one of the key takeaways. And uh, yeah, so that was something that I wanted to focus on this time. Um, get a variety of kills. Don't just show every kill. Get some off screen, get some fun, campy ones, get some serious ones, get some brutal ones and uh, just have fun with it. So, Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned that because I did wonder with um, the first Vengeance movie, if there were like scenes that, you know, were on the cutting room floor, um, especially because like later on in the movie, you introduce um, Diana Prince's character's uh, love interest uh, played by, I believe, Veronica Ritchie. And I was like, oh, was she yeah. in it earlier? And I, I, I kind of assumed, oh, maybe there was more scenes that, that were on the cutting room floor. I, I think Vengeance 2, not as much was left on the cutting room floor. I fe it felt more cohesive in some ways. Yeah, there was quite a bit. So about an hour and a half on the cutting room floor from the first one. We probably could have made two movies out of it. So the Veronica Ricci character that you mentioned, um, she did have more scenes earlier on. She was supposed to be part of that the whole time, but a scheduling conflict um, made it so that she couldn't be there when we needed her. So we did have the one scene in the very beginning that some people might miss. It goes by so fast where she's setting up tents for them before they come out. And um, and that goes by so quick. So it's easy to miss. But um, but yeah, so that some of the character building of that whole crew that goes out there, building them up, um, the Elias stuff, the, the young girls, it just there was so much that had to be sacrificed. Um, the story and the relationship between the, the deputies, a lot had to be left behind um, so that we could get kind of the core plot out. So and then for part two, we actually had another hour that we cut. Um, there's a lot of other things that happened. The roadblock scene was longer. Some of the intro was longer. Uh, we had a longer introduction to that first search and rescue crew. Um, one of our groups actually went through another house altogether, a Louis house, and had some jokes in there. But once we watched it, the pacing fell off. And it felt like we're going, uh, getting away from our main characters too much. And we were sacrificing story for a couple of laughs or sacrificing story for a couple of uh, fun kills or something. So we had to really just reel it back in, say, you know, ask what's important and then chop some stuff that we loved just to uh, make it feel the way it is now. So for people uh, that, that may be new to the Friday, the 13th uh, franchise, the, the series, uh, let's talk a little bit about, you mentioned Elias Voorhees and it's, it's funny because you guys didn't just, uh, pull that character out and and create them all on your own. I mean, Elias does have a history in like the comic books, and I think even in the original script uh, for Friday the Thirteenth Part Six. So maybe talk about that character and including him in the film. Yeah, so like you said, in the comics and some uh, the video games, some other things that Elias has come up 
people have kind of asked sometimes like, well, we had no Pamela Gore, he's Jason's mom. What about the dad? And as we were talking about making vengeance, one of the stories that the director wanted to tell was kind of explore that character. And because we didn't want to just tell the same Camp Crystal Lake story. Campers go in the woods, Jason shows up, campers die. You know, um, so how could we make it different and explore something else in that universe that makes sense? And what um, a lot of the fans know, but some casual viewers may not know, is Tom McLaughlin, who wrote and directed part six. He had his original ending was supposed to be in the graveyard where the gravekeeper meets Elias and Elias is paying him um, uh, to maintain the graves and all that. And there's storyboards. You could go look it up on, on Google or whatever, do a search. You could find those storyboards from the original concept. And we decided this being a sequel to part six, um, let's take the ending that Tom McLaughlin never was able to make because of studios and let's start our film that way. That was the way it was supposed to end. Let's make that our beginning and carried on there. And we had Tom McLaughlin play the gravekeeper. So um, that's how we, uh, that's how we introduce our, our continuation was through um, Tom McLaughlin's storytelling, including him in it. And, um, and that's how we're introducing the character was kind of starting off. We, we told a different story than Tom had intended um and um but he he was fully on board with it loves what we did and uh and obviously you can see participated through both films what do you think it is about friday the 13th part six that um i i think it's a, a fan favorite you know essentially um yeah. it, well why do you think there was why why did you guys pick this um entry in the franchise to do a sequel to directly well i know it's the director you know and the writer he it was his favorite film. It was my favorite film. And for me to answer the question, why it's my kind of favorite is I love when there's um, lightheartedness and humor injected with your horror and scares and, and brutality. Um, I always say I like the, the roller coaster effect where you have the highs and the lows. Because if you're just like on just the lows and just the scares and just brutality, then it's like you have nowhere to come up to go down. You're always in the, the down. So I like bringing you all over the place. And as you can see in Vengeance 2, we took it even a step further. It has some very emotional um, scenes and we had some some good laughs and we had some good scares. So we really want to take you for, for an emotional ride on this one. So it, what's really interesting to me is, I, I know earlier, um, th this is technically a fan film, but it has, you know, the fill of a uh, just a feature length, a very professionally done movie. And uh, I think uh, Vengeance, the first one, was even promoted as like, oh, it's it's don't think of it as just a fan film. It's more than a fan film. So maybe you could talk a little bit about what kind of blood, sweat and tears went into making this, you know, feature length film, essentially. Yeah. So the first one, um, Steve Dash, again, who played Jason in part two, when he was on it, he's the one in one of our early interviews who said, you know, vengeance is something special it's more than a fan film and he was saying that because we had donated you know funds that we had raised ourselves to charity to the children's hospital twenty six thousand dollars and then he was in it he knew it was going to be his last film that he's ever done we had cj we had him we had um diana prince who's darcy the male girl we had bugsy hoffa from the video game we had um harry manfredini doing the score we had all this support and all this great stuff coming together you know mixed so, Real quick, if you could, uh, with with Manfredini, uh, because I've had people say when when they're crediting him, are they just like using his music over again? You're saying he actually was involved in scoring this new one. 
Uh, yeah. In the first one, he scored it. Yeah, okay. Like, we handed him the movie. He gave us a, an original brand new score. In the second one, we um, reused parts of that score. Okay. So he didn't actively, we didn't have enough time um, to, to get through to for the release in order to get him to sit down with the whole thing. So we just kind of reused some of the score and some of the pieces that he gave us. So, um, but yeah, so in the first one, we talked about it being more than a fan film. That's what Steve Dash coined it as. And we have so many people from the franchise and so many people from the, from the film industry in Hollywood who grow, who made actual horror movies like Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and 4 and Blade, Leatherface, you know, and Friday the 13th and stuff. And they're all working on this film because we want, we all have this passion. Um, and so we had, that's why there was such that professional level. And then with part two, after the success of part one, we got more talent on board and more people. And we had Cody Newton, who was our DP, who a director of photography. He's, he's a brilliant director, but also can be a director of photography. And, and so all the shots he, he framed up, it looks amazing. Um, we had a great sound guy. We had um, just the crew was elevated. And again, we've learned over the last few years. So um, that helped a lot. And then having some, a lot of the other celebrities come in from all the horror franchises, uh, it just really elevated the whole thing. And so, like you're saying, you can say the word fan film and people have this expectation of like, oh, some people with an iPhone in the backyard in the woods shooting a guy in a costume. But that's, that's the word we have to use, right? So, um, but when people watch it, they're just kind of blown away. Like, it looks like professionals made this. And it's true. We have professionals who made it, you know? So um, it's it's just fun to have something that has resonated with so many fans and that people love um, and all that hard work has paid off. Do you think um, also that, that technology has helped with, um, you know, not just this film, but also other fan films that have come out um, uh, around Friday the 13th, like Roseblood, which you're also in, um, do you think that just the barrier to entry may be a little bit lower now because, you know, you can get these cameras that, you know, they look like professional films when they're done, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's a lot of, you know, independent filmmakers, a lot of talent out there who used to not ever be able to get their work in front of people. But since we've all gone digital and since cameras are more accessible now, you don't have to pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for a film camera. You can now spend thousands of dollars or hundreds of dollars or even use your phone that has 4k you know in cinema mode so um it really has allowed independent filmmakers to put their work out there more on uh, and with the places like youtube and vimeo and and facebook you know people are able to share the work where they've never had the opportunity to be seen before so it definitely were, opens it more. what were some of the biggest um challenges uh, that you had while filming this because i'm always interested in the nitty-gritty of uh how the film gets made and i think my audience is too I mean, the biggest challenge, um, honestly, would be budget. Not having, you know, you have a very finite budget and you have these big ambitions. You know, we wanted to have these kills um, and they're elaborate. Those are expensive, you know. So those all came out of my pocket, um, building all those silicone bodies and parts and, and the gore. Um, I, I had to build those in order to keep the cost down. And then having the, the celebrities and flights and hotels and scheduling all these people who are really busy. COVID was ending and people are starting to get back to work. Conventions are opening up. They're all starting to get back on the, on the circuit again, getting that all lined up and coordinating, you know, a crew of like 50 people plus um, 
plus the actors and the talent and getting it all together in a short amount of time with the little, the little bit of money we had. Um, it really was a lot of uh, orchestration. How many days uh, did you guys shoot for ultimately? Um, we had, we, our initial principal photography was about 16 days. Uh, we broke it up into two week sections and, um, and did about eight days and eight days and with a week in between. And then we had another few days of pickup shots that we knew we couldn't finish during that time frame. So we shot that a couple months later, we put together a rough cut and kind of sat back and looked at it, asked ourselves and a, a small test audience, what are we missing? Is it make sense? And so we got some feedback from some people. Hey, I don't know why these characters are there, or who they are. And they either hadn't seen the first movie or forgot. And so we're like, okay, that's good news, good no information to have. We should go back and explain to the audience where we are from the first one, why we're here, what these characters are doing, and kind of put some of that in there. And so we did. We, we spent another um, four days or so uh, shooting additional shots. So all in all, I'd probably say we shot maybe 22 days. So that that's incredible that you guys were able to do that in that span of time and, and just bring it all together. And also, uh, I really love that you brought in so many different alumni of not just Friday the 13th, but also um, Halloween. You had Tamira Glynn, uh, yeah. who has a great line about, you know, oh, I don't know about Jason. I'm from Haddonfield. Uh, but of course, <laughs> you have Tom Matthews, who is yep. the greatest Tommy Jarvis, uh, Friday the 13th, part six. You mentioned C.J. Graham. What was it like working with... Uh, all the different actors and actresses from the horror world, including, I should also mention, uh, Darcy DeMoss, who played Nikki yeah. in Friday the 13th 6. They are absolutely fantastic, lovely people. Um, you know, I worked with CJ and Tom McLaughlin um, from the first film. So I've worked with them a couple times now. And then uh, it's my first time working with a lot of the other ones. But I've met them on um, when I've been doing the, the concert myself, going around and doing some signings. Uh, that's where I met Paul Taylor, who plays Pinhead in Hellraiser Judgment. Um, and then, so I talked to him, would you like to be in? And Rob Mello, same thing, Babyface Killer from Happy Death Day, bring him in. Um, Tamara Glenn, met her at a convention. Um, and just, you know, we become friends. And as we're talking, you're like, what project are you working on? What are you working on? It's like, I'm working on this. It's like, that sounds fun. Do you want to be a part of it? You know? Oh, you so, even had one of the Ramones in it, Richie Ramone. And Richie Ramone. So Tamara Glenn is, is, um, best friends with Richie Ramone. And so after she was cast, she called me up and she's like, Richie heard about it. He really wants to be in this. You know, is there a spot? And like, oh, there's not right now, you know. But I was talking to uh, Alice Cooper and also um, uh, David Howard Thornton and about being in the film. And and Alice Cooper, he was unavailable. He's touring. But then, uh, and David Howard Thornton had to go back and shoot some, some other scenes uh, and was unavailable all of a sudden. So his role opened up and I was like, yeah, I'll put, Richie in there. So we're, and thankfully we rewrote that whole thing. So it was a band situation and, um, and squeeze that in. But yeah, he was, he was amazing also. I think it was really interesting to uh, having Tom McLaughlin, McLaughlin uh, who wrote Friday the 13th part six in this second movie with a much more expanded role uh, as Walt, the gravekeeper. Uh, was that always intended? Like, did you get, what, what led you to want to include him in more of this? Well, I really liked how he was in the first film. And I liked the dynamic in my mind of um, Elias basically being somewhat supernatural, but having almost an earth servant, you know, kind of a, a familiar, um, if you take in the vampire term or whatever. But it's having him do his dirty work for him 
and uh, do all the research, find Tommy, kidnap the kids, do whatever it is that he needs done. He's going to have somebody do that for him. And so who better than the gravekeeper? And I really loved what, what Tom McLaughlin brought to it. And I wanted to see more of it. And he is a brilliant actor. And so um, having him on there and expanding that was just, it was absolutely a great experience and, and wonderful. So. What, what do you think your favorite part of the film has been? And what, what has the reaction been? Like, what, what are the favorite parts of the film that's, that people who have watched it have talked about? Um, the ending comes up a lot. You know, the last, the last half of the film just takes you on that ride and it's just go, go, go. Um, and, and it's fun. Like, people, the reviews have been overwhelmingly positive. You know, we, you always brace yourself because you're going to have haters. You're going to have people who don't like it already before they watch it. They're going to hate it because it's a fan film. And so we were prepared to, to hear all that. But then when we started seeing reviews come in and it was like none of that. And everyone was like, oh, my God, this is the film that we've been waiting for. This is what Hollywood should have done. This is um, amazing. And that ending was like people saying how you can't make a better ending than that. You couldn't have come up with a dip. Like nobody can come up with a better idea, you know, so it's the, the the things that people are saying like that are really, really wonderful feedback and really a good payoff for, like I said, the cast and crew who put so much heart and soul and time into this and love. And it's just wonderful. So um, that and then the special effects, the practical effects in here, the kills people are just talking about a lot and asking about and um, just blown away by. So it's, I think that everybody put, 110% into this and it shows. And we're really grateful that we were able to take it to a level that people are appreciating. What do you think about the, um, just the whole uh, slew of Friday the 13th fan films we've been getting in the past few years? Of course, uh, we have Vengeance, we have uh, Never Hike Alone. It really is filling a void uh, ever since this lawsuit between uh, Victor Miller and Sean Cunningham put, put the kibosh really on uh, an official entry coming from one of the big studios. You guys are really filling a void in a lot of ways. Yeah, I, I love it. I think it's great. You know, uh, people want more and now there's more. And one of the great things about having so many different fan films is it gets a lot of different stories out there, you know, and I always say, just like with the original franchise, everybody has their favorite. Like you said, part six is a fan favorite. But then some people are like, no, I like part seven. Part seven is brutal. And I love that. And Kane Hodder really tears it up. And other people are like, I don't like anything after four. I don't want zombie Jason. I don't want fake Jason. You know, so everybody has their favorite. Everybody has their movie, which defines Jason for them. And so with the variety of band films coming out, everybody can have something that they enjoy and everyone can like something that's there. It just, it's more content. It's more connection to that, to that world. And so I think it's great. And seeing so much, talent being used and so much of that um, artistic energy going towards this, I think is a really wonderful thing. Before closing out, I just had two more questions briefly here. Um, I know you mentioned uh, budgetary constraints. Are you able to, I mean, just to give listeners an idea of the the challenge with budgetary constraints, like what, what, what's the ballpark that, that uh, the fan film was made for? So part one was made, you know, we raised $54,000. Um, and then on this second one, we raised 72,000. But then after the fees, you know, for the Kickstarter and all that stuff come out, you end up with like 64. So making a movie like this on $64,000 is very problematic. Um, a lot comes out of my pocket. 
Um, a lot comes out of uh, the other team's pockets. We a lot of time is donated, so um, it's not it's not easy. You call in a lot of favors, <laughs> right? Last thing I wanted to ask about was uh, in both the first vengeance and this one, there is numerous amounts of kills and gore and carnage candy. Uh, I know the first one you had uh, Joe Castro doing special effects, and he's a very underrated special effects artist. Uh, could you talk about who worked on the special effects for Vengeance 2 and uh, what fans can expect in terms of the carnage candy? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, Joe Castro, he did the, the head rip from the Louie character um, on the first one. Um, and on this one for part two, you know, I, I do special effects as well. That's kind of where I got some of my start was doing props, costumes, effects. And so, um, I did the body castings. I did the, the props, the effects, the silicone bodies, all that stuff. Um, you know, ripping people's spines open, peeling people in half, cutting people in half. Um, we have all kinds of carnage and blood everywhere, uh, ripping limbs off and just, it's insane. So um, myself, uh, my partner, Naomi Micha Miller, who's an amazing, talented effects artist, uh, before we got to filming, we built all these props, all these body parts, all these practical effects. Then we had an amazing makeup team led by Michelle Munoz, um, who helped execute all these effects on set. So, but it's, it's a lot of fun. It's very surprising, a lot of fun surprises. Well, and also it, it nearly runs it. I mean, it's not exactly two hours, but it, this is over an hour and a half feature film. And I think uh, anyone who likes the Friday the 13th movies or just wants a good scare for Halloween should check it out. I want to thank you again, Jason Brooks, for coming on Parallax Views. Thank you so much for having me. There are worlds inside our minds, worlds of peace and beauty. But when our minds wander too far, we lose control and enter the dark, deadly world of Freddy Krueger, where nightmares come alive. Experience this world every week on Freddy's new television series, A Nightmare on Elm Street, the series Freddy's Nightmares. Don't let him catch you sleeping. <laughs> That's right. Next up, we're going to be talking about the forgotten Nightmare on Elm Street TV series, Freddy's Nightmares. By the late 1980s, Freddy Krueger had become a horror juggernaut who was ubiquitous in popular culture. When Freddy wasn't scaring audiences on the big screen, he was appearing on lunchboxes, making appearances on MTV, and even showing up in rap music videos. So it should come as no surprise that the horror icon got his own TV show, in which he acted as the Rod Serling-like host of a Twilight Zone-esque horror anthology, detailing the dark and supernatural goings-on of his stomping grounds, the town of Springwood, Ohio. After its initial two-season run, Freddy's Nightmares became very hard to see in good quality, circulating mostly amongst tape traders. 
in the form of poor quality bootlegs. That is, until recently, when the entire Freddy's Nightmares series was made available on the free with ads streaming service Tubi. With the show now being rediscovered, filmmaker Henrik Couteau and his friend David DeNoyer have joined together to explore each and every of the show's 44 episodes in the new podcast, Welcome to Primetime, of Freddy's Nightmares Retrospective. They join us on this edition of the show to discuss Freddy's Nightmares, the popularity of Freddy Krueger, independent filmmaking, Henrik's new anthology series, Found Footage, their thoughts on Halloween Ends, and much, much more. So, without any further ado, let's get right into it with Henrik Couteau and David DeNoyer, hosts of Welcome to Primetime, a Freddy's Nightmares retrospective. Welcome back to Parallax Views, just in time for the spooky season. Halloween is upon us. Henrik Couteau and David DeNoyer. Uh, David's a first-time guest. Henrik has uh, been on the show before to talk about his great series that he did for Fred Olin Ray, uh, the Boggy Creek TV series. But on this edition of the show, we're going to be talking about Henrik and David's new podcast, Welcome to Primetime, which is all about a show that people... I think have forgotten, uh, although it's making a comeback now because it's on Tubi, and that show is Freddy's Nightmares. Yes, it's a Nightmare on Elm Street TV series with Freddy Krueger, and uh, I just wanted to ask you guys uh, to start out. Um, first off, how did you guys decide to end up putting this podcast together for a, a show that's kind of obscure in the realm of anthology horror? Oh, well, I think that's kind of where it came from. Uh, the fact that we had only experienced Freddy's nightmares on, you know, a rare occasion on a chiller channel or from buying a bootleg at a movie convention, it just kind of always felt like it wasn't available enough to really experience it. My, my God, those bootlegs were terrible. Oh, my, <laughs> we, we have a story about that. So Dave bought oh, a bootleg for like a ton of cash. And it was the first time we attempted to watch Freddy's Nightmares. Mm -hmm. And the picture quality was so bad that it, we had this joke running gag between us where I say, hey, is he wearing glasses? Because Dave was like, the quality's not that bad. It's really not that bad. And I was like, okay, is that character wearing glasses? You were like, no. And then it cut to a close-up. He, he was totally clearly wearing, wearing glasses. glasses. <laughs> like, that's how bad the compression was on it. So that that was, uh, yeah, the, some of those bootlegs were hideous. And... We had not, not just Freddy's Nightmares either. There were oh, other shows oh, yeah. like uh, it was hard finding Friday the 13th series in good condition for a while. Um, my personal favorite was uh, the anthology Monsters. Oh, it was sort buddy. of a follow up to uh, <laughs> Tales from the Dark Side. But oh, yeah. you could barely yeah. find any good copies of that back in the day. Yeah. No, absolutely. And and Freddy's Nightmares was kind of the last bastion of that era that you couldn't really get your hands on easily. So when it hit Screenbox, it put it back on our radar because we'd never sat down and watched the entire run. And then it hits Tubi. And all of a sudden, not only can we watch it whenever we want for free, but so can everyone else. 
And I've been doing a lot of podcasts for a long time now. I've done, you know, I do the weekly spooky show and stuff like that. So one day I was like, hey, Dave, if we're going to sit and watch all of these anyway, all 44, <laughs> why don't we do something fun and we'll just kick back? We'll be fans, which is something that I'm a, a big proponent of. You know, I've been a professional in the movie business for a long time, and I've always believed that the worst thing you can do is stop being a fan. If you're not enjoying movies, if you're not enjoying uh, going to the theater, you're not enjoying TV shows, you're going to fall out of it completely. So. I was just excited to kind of be a fan and to just kind of shoot the shit in a, uh, in a like really excited way. And I'm a massive Freddy fan. One of the biggest Freddy Krueger fans in the world. And I'm getting new Freddy, Freddy that's new to me every single week. It's kind of mind blowing. So let, let's uh, talk about that first. Um, how did you guys first become introduced to the character of Freddy Krueger? What's your first memory of Elm Street? Uh, do you, you want to start, Enric, or Dave? Oh, uh, Dave, you go first because I talked to him. All right. Um, well, to be perfectly honest, I, you know, I uh, was telling Henrik this a couple weeks back as we just kind of got on the topic of uh, rites of passage in regards of what we were allowed to watch growing up and whatnot. And um, I had known about Freddy Krueger, you know, from Halloween, seeing people in the mask, they'd play the movies on TV. But as far as actually getting to sit down and watch A Nightmare on Elm Street, I think it was like age 13 when I finally saw Nightmare on Elm Street for the first time and, and learned about Freddy Krueger. <laughs> um, and then in regards to the character uh, progressing into like Freddy's nightmares and stuff, that was um, I was staying at my uncle's house and he had access to the Chiller channel at the time, which was a, a horror channel that was on cable what would you say like early 2000s or so like early to, to well it was like mid to late mid to 2000s, late yeah. yeah and they would show things like um american gothic uh, tales from the dark side that's the first place i ever saw the anthology film nightmares with like the giant rat <laughs> uh and stuff like that and they would show freddy's nightmares towards the end of the afternoon and the first time i ever got to sit down and watch it was uh episode three which was killer instinct which um <laughs> It was it was not what I expected, but also at the same time, Freddie's presence on that show is just something to behold. <laughs> so you have to you have to see it to believe it. So Freddie has always been a big staple for me personally. Um, I would say Nightmare on Elm Street is is higher ranking than Halloween for my favorite franchise just because of the character of Freddie. Yeah, I mean, Freddie definitely stands out. And I, for me, Freddy Krueger has been ubiquitous as long as I can remember. I was given access to these movies way too young. I mean, like irresponsibly young because I had a sister who was nine years older than me. So when I was five, four or five years old, she would be like, let's watch, you know, these movies while mom's asleep. And we would, and we would stay up all night and we would drink Coca-Cola and we would, we did, we used to watch Nightmare on Elm Street three the most, and we would uh, drink Coca-Cola and eat spoonfuls of instant coffee like they did in the movie. And we would stay up all night and try to see how many of them we could watch. So I've been watching Freddy just obsessively for as long as I can remember. And it's always been, uh, it's kind of been an element of like, my friends will give me Freddy Krueger things if they don't know what what else to give me. I have a life-size cardboard cutout of Freddy Krueger in my living room. He does. So I've been I've been massively obsessed with Freddy for a super long time. I have a nightmare glove. I have like a real metal Freddy Krueger glove. I've just, 
I'm just bananas for Freddy Krueger. That you cut your birthday cake with. I cut, yeah, that one year I cut a birthday <laughs> cake with that glove and then realized the glove was coated in some weird <laughs> spray on gunk that made the cake taste funny. So I gotta ask, <laughs> did you start with, um, and, and we'll get into Freddy's nightmares, but when it comes to the, the sort of franchise itself, the Nightmare on Elm Street, uh, did you start with the original Nightmare? Because funny story with me, there used to be a local video store when I was growing up in the 90s. And for some reason, I saw the cover of Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge. And I was like, I want to see that. And I had never seen the other Elm Streets. Uh, and I picked it up. And it was such a, a weird experience because whoever had the tape last did not rewind it. So <laughs> I start out putting the VHS in. And the first thing I see is that sort of um, post-climax scene where in the where they're in the, the bus and spoiler alert, people who haven't seen it, uh, <laughs> even though it's been like, what, 40 years, uh, you know, all I see is a hand coming out of, uh, you know, the, the Freddy Krueger glove coming out of Mark Patton's uh, his stomach. So, I mean, it, it's pretty crazy. That, uh, that was my first story, experience yeah. when it scared the crap out of me. Well, and, and, uh, for me, it was part three. Part three was the, the original one because that was my older sister's favorite of the series. So that was always the one we started with. And also as time progressed, cause she had the first five on VHS. That's why we watched them so much. Cause I'm just, I'm 36. I'm just old enough to remember when VHS was too expensive to own. And then when it started to get more affordable to the point where tapes were only 20 or $30. Oh, and, it's, it, like it's that. insane. When you look back on that era, like I have a, um, I have an old VHS of a movie. I, I know Fred Olin Ray re-released it on Blu-ray recently, but it was a movie called Moon and Scorpio. Uh, Gary Graver directed it with uh, yeah. Britt Eklund. And if you look on the back of the VHS, it says the price is $80. Yes. I mean, it was insane back then. But. Well, they could price them. They priced them. Uh, it was non-sell through. They priced them for rental. So that's why they, they made them so expensive. And sell through really hit in the 90s and kind of threw everything into out of whack in a way but it was good for movie collectors and movie fans and it paved the way for what dvd and blu-ray and 4k would become which was a collector's medium so with with the tapes i remember being younger and i would generally watch nightmare on elm street 4 the most because it wasn't so scary but i remember gotta be honest that's my favorite of the sequels it's my favorite too <laughs> I saw. I was at the uh, last week. I was actually last last week. Yeah, it was last last week. weekend. I was at the Mahoning Drive-in in uh, in Lehighton, Pennsylvania, and I watched Freddy Fest. They showed one, two, and three on the first night at the drive-in, and then uh, four, five, and six the second night at the drive-in. It was a religious experience. It was so cool to get to see all those films on thirty-five millimeter at a legendary drive-in. Um, it's a really, really fun time. So yeah, that was kind of the thing. I, I started with three, and then I remember. I, I saw part one, but it was so scary that I wouldn't want to throw it on all the time mm -hmm. until I got closer to like 10, 11, 12 years old. That was when I started to be really into the scary ones. And funny enough, uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 2, you know, all the stuff about the homoeroticism element and stuff of it. Yeah, I did not. I did not get all of that when I was like, I don't know, yeah. six Obviously. years old when I saw it because they let me rent it for some reason. <laughs> Probably oh, not the I best idea, but. No, all I remember is that it was scary. It wasn't as scary as the first one, but it was scary. So that would kind of be the one I would show like at a sleepover. I would show it to a friend if I didn't want to like terrify the hell out of them. I would show them Nightmare on Elm Street 2 because it was still scary. It just wasn't as scary as the first one. So then 
for for people that for, I have a lot of like younger like Zoomer listeners, uh, so <laughs> you know, I, I think sometimes people forget just how ubiquitous Freddy Krueger became in like the late '80s, early '90s. Because like, not only did you have like Roseanne Barr appearing in uh, you know Freddy's Dead, I think Freddy actually made an appearance on the Roseanne show. You know, it, it Freddy was have, everywhere. Freddy was everywhere at the time. Yeah. Lunchboxes, uh, pajamas, the house that Freddie built, just everywhere. Yeah, he was. Yeah, and- that's what they called New Line. New Line yeah. Cinema. I mean, really, you know, that was the movie that made New Line Cinema. They'd made movies like Pink Flamingos and whatnot, but it was, you know, Freddy Krueger, you know, was the rocket for them. Yeah, and that was the first film they they put money into that was a massive success and not just a modest success. And it was probably easier to have kids dress up as Freddy versus Divine and Pink Flamingos, too, now you think about it. I mean, I think that's a better costume, <laughs> but easier to accomplish than all that <laughs> scarred face makeup. But, uh, but and, and that's the thing, you know, because of the era I grew up in was right at the tail end of Freddy Krueger. Freddy wasn't quite so excitedly mainstream anymore. He was kind of an older thing. So then when, but what's funny is I would get really into Freddy. And then when I turned like 13, 14, 15, all of a sudden it became a rite of passage. People would be like, Hey, you have those movies, don't you? And I'd be like, yeah, bro. Of course I do. <laughs> like, this has always been my life. But there was that time probably when my older sister was, you know, a teenager, especially where it was just everywhere all the time. And I wish I could I think have he even, didn't that. they have Freddy host MTV one time? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> no, he became he became Henny Youngman, but a child murderer. And I mean, <laughs> I mean, why? I mean, you know, two great tastes that taste great together, you know? So, but yeah, and that's the thing. Freddie was the, became a goofball and he became everybody's favorite, you know, boogeyman. And that's kind of the incredible thing. I mean, he was hot, full blown for like a decade. Yeah. I mean, like super hot. For like a decade. And then, you know, after Freddy's dead, things started to peter off. But I remember when New Nightmare came out, my mother rushing home from work with a pizza in one hand and the VHS copy of New Nightmare in the other. And we, you know, watched that and we were like, whoa, Freddy's scary again. <laughs> so, I mean, I, that's the thing. And you know, I it's, it's funny. Okay. That movie is very underrated, in my opinion, because I agree. I agree. You yeah. know, New Nightmare was basically doing what Scream did a few years earlier than Scream. It was craving playing with the whole meta commentary type thing. Exactly. Yeah. And Craven was always ahead of his time and he was always a trendsetter. You know, he's the only guy to make two films that every movie afterward were changed because of it, because after Nightmare on Elm street, all horror movies changed. And after scream, all, all horror, horror movies changed. changed. Yeah. You know, he was, and that's really special because most of the greatest masters of horror only changed the entire world once. Yeah. You know, Carpenter changed the whole world of horror once. Romero changed the whole world of horror once. Toby Hooper changed the whole world of horror once. Craven twice, twice. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's an incredible story. So, I, but yeah, I think new nightmare gets uh, a lot of guff, uh, but I think it's really good. I think it ages really well. It gets scarier the older you get. Cause it's a very mature movie, which is interesting. Cause it's the seventh film in a series. That's mostly about teenagers and, and about teenagers going to see them and also, you know, teenagers getting killed in it. But all of a sudden Craven was feeling much more mature. Yeah. And, and that's the same thing with scream. You watch scream. Now scream is a very mature movie yet. It's a, teen movie with like Dawson's Creek looking kids in it, but it was very adult in the themes and, and stuff like that. 
even um even the original Nightmare on Elm Street, it's very different than other horror movies, right? Because when I watch the original, it feels more like it doesn't just feel like a a slasher movie or anything like that. It actually feels like a very um like a dark fairy tale or a dark coming of age story. Uh, especially when you consider the original ending, where I, I guess um, Craven had initially intended for it to be, you know, Heather Langenkamp and her friends drive off into the fog or whatever. You know, it's it's a very different movie, even for its time. Yeah, it, it's more like The Exorcist than it is like Friday the Thirteenth. Yeah, I would agree with that. It's it's much more of like an like an understated at first, uh, an understated horror of the mind kind of thing. But it is also a slasher movie. It is. And what I think I think what always has worked for me about Nightmare on Elm Street is it like I say this in the best way. It could happen or it feels like it could happen. Like you you have that, uh, you know, you have to sleep. You have to dream naturally or as you know, as much as you can for that. But you could be haunted by something in your dreams, your trauma or, you know, whatever it might be can come back at you. Well, and you're always alone in your dreams. Yeah. You know, no matter how much uh, support, how many friends, how, you know, your parents, when you go to bed at night and you're in your brain, it's only you. And that's a scary thing too. I mean, how many, you know, it's, it's a cliche that, you know, kid knocks on the, the parents door and says, can I sleep with you? I had a bad dream. It, it's a very common thing. But the other thing about nightmare that I just love especially watching it now as a, a person in my 30s nightmare on elm street is one giant attack on authority yeah because the entire point of the film is no one will believe her even though she's got more evidence than most people would they just kind of brush her off as just you know wanting attention or or, or being mad that her parents are divorcing or, or whatever it may be her father is literally the ultimate authority figure. He's her father and he's the chief of police and no one will listen. No one will listen. And their job is their only job is to protect their children. And they can't even, they think they are, yeah, but they're not. And I think that's a scary thing, but that's also a really interesting indictment of authority figures and their idea of protection is putting them in danger basically because yeah. they're like you just need some sleep yeah, just sleep that's fine <laughs> you just need to get a good night's sleep and you'll feel so much better <laughs> that's the drinking game watch the series and every time a parent tells a kid you just need a good night's sleep take oh a drink gosh. you'll die <laughs> yeah it's it's funny you mention that because i i mean this probably sounds like a really um weird comparison but in some ways uh the whole anti-authority angle to it. You know, I'm always reminded of the movie Heathers. Oh, yeah. Uh, because, you know, they're, they're similar in a way because it really is sort of an attack on the cluelessness of parents and parents who don't listen to their kids. Yeah. You know, that's almost what, you know, the, the message of all the nightmare films are. Yeah, absolutely. That you should listen to your kids and, and you know, when they tell you they're in danger, you should believe them. And, and also the idea, I mean, one of the biggest coming of age moments is when you realize that the adults are just like you, you know, they don't always have all the answers. They're not always on top of everything. They're just like you. Cause there's that point where you grow up and you realize like, whoa, were my parents like me? I mean, I'm 30 now. And they, when they were 30, were they like me? Cause I don't know what the hell's going on half the time. I'm just <laughs> trying my best. So that's a, and that's a big moment at the end of innocence is realizing your parents can be wrong. Your parents can be mistaken and they can put you in harm's way. So then with Freddy's nightmares, in case people are unfamiliar with the TV show, it's a little bit different than uh, 
a lot of other anthologies at the time, because a lot of other anthologies would be, you know, half hour format with commercials. Whereas this is a very weird show in that it's, it's, it's doing the whole thing that other anthology shows do, right? Where, uh, you know, basically each story is a morality play um, and someone gets their comeuppance at the end, but they're doing like two stories for one show. Yeah. So it, it's very weirdly set up. Like, yeah, the first 22 minutes is one story. And then the second story is another 22 minutes and they're only vaguely connected. It's, it's a very unique show in a lot of ways. Maybe you could talk a little bit about how is the show sort of structured for people sure. that are just getting to know about it? Well, that's one of our favorite things to talk about on the show is <laughs> the bizarreness of the A and B. So far as we've gone through the series, uh, we have noticed there are a couple of episodes where it actually does feel like it's a con con coherent 44 minutes. Yeah. But most of them, it doesn't. Most of them, you're absolutely right. It's just like the slightest thread to keep it going. Basically, the birth of Freddy's Nightmares came when Bob Shea at New Line Cinema got contacted by Lorimar Television. And they said, hey, you've got a hot property with Freddy. We want to do something on TV with it. And Bob said, let's do it. Well, then they were like, okay, well, you want to make a uh, hour-long show. But the problem with doing an hour-long show is there are markets that won't take an hour-long show. They want a half-an-hour show. So let's make a half-an-hour show. And Bob Shea would never, <laughs> ever leave money on the table. So what does Bob Shea do? Bob Shea says, well, what if we make it a show where you could end it at 22 minutes? <laughs> it would be done or it'll just keep going. So it makes the second half of the show feel almost like fever dreamishly superfluous. Yeah, it doesn't really matter a lot of the time, although we just finished watching uh, one because we, we record quite a bit ahead on the podcast. So we just finished episode seven, My Sister's Keeper. And that one, the, the audience is... <laughs> The audiences that saw only the first 22 minutes of that really missed out on like all of the good stuff. They got so ripped off. Well, the second half also tends to be the sleaziest half yeah. of the episodes too, which makes sense because originally it was supposed to run at midnight. Yeah. Um, but then things get even crazier because as time progresses, Bob Shea gets mad because Lorimar has the rights to the television syndication in the United States and Canada, I believe. And New Line has everything else, but Bob's never sold television shows before. So he finds out that the, the foreign markets just don't want it. So he gives these new marching orders to the writers at Freddy's Nightmares saying, basically, <laughs> I need you to not only make these episodes two standalone stories, but I also need you to make two parters that could be edited together to be one eighty some minute movie because he can sell the movies, which are two episodes combined of Freddy's Nightmares, to the overseas market. So now you have these writers, these poor writers who have to make a 44 minute show that is also a 22 minute show, but that can also be combined with another 44 minute show to be an 80 something minute show. <laughs> it's incredible. I don't know how Gil Adler and them friggin' survived that. Honestly, I, I like it's, it's, but I think that's kind of one of the things that keeps the show so odd Yeah, is that they have so much, they have so much structure to deal with, but otherwise they were kind of let loose. Yeah, and, and you can tell once you get into those B stories sometimes that they kind of just threw ideas at the wall to see what sticked for a lot of the visuals too. Yeah, <laughs> or they just saved a really nasty, gory payoff. Yeah, that too. It's interesting too, because uh, for people that don't know, there's only, I, I would say, I think it's like seven or eight episodes that have Freddy within the stories. Eight. Most yeah. of the show is really like 
you know, Freddie is almost like a Rod Serling type host doing a Twilight Zone type thing. Although there is, I, I guess you could say there is this implication within all the stories that he's sort of puppeteering it, but you're not yeah, yeah. seeing him puppeteering it. Yeah, he's like a Rod Serling that pops up on location occasionally, but instead of saying like, and they're in a world where blah, 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 he like goes and cuts your fucking brake lines, <laughs> you know, <laughs> he cuts the brake lines and then, but, but he doesn't participate in that the characters see him or whatever. They just kind of implicate that all of these weird nightmarish things are related to him because it's Springwood and Springwood is his home. Um, but uh, they also are... find really inventive ways, not to interrupt you, but they oh, find yeah. inventive ways at times uh, to show that Freddie is behind what's happening. Like <laughs> I was just, I was just watching the, uh, the episode with Brad Pitt, which oh, I think yeah. is like episode 14, season one. Uh, but at one point they show like, like a little Freddie head on top of a, a, a power cable or something. So like they found like weird ways to yeah. incorporate him in it without having Robert England be in the actual story. Yeah, they they definitely move with it. It's like he's not quite a crypt keeper. Yeah. Because he he pops up mostly just to say weird one-liners or to kind of give you a hint of where he's going to take things. Like the uh that episode with the what was the Saturday night special where it's a video dating service, but the guy walks into the video <laughs> dating service building and then Freddie rises behind the building like a kaiju, like a giant Godzilla. <laughs> And then sucks, sucks the, building the building into his mouth. <laughs> or you have the best one uh, from what was it, Killer Instinct? That makes no sense at all. Where they've just had a funeral, and Freddie's glove like reaches up to grab a, or no, it's uh, Lori Petty's hand reaches up to grab the flower, and then they just pan over to a tombstone that has Freddie's head on top of it, and his line is like, "Ain't over until the fat lady." dies which that's the other great thing those one-liners vary in quality a lot a lot uh or, or the the it's was it uh which one was it the one where he's his head's just in the friggin oh no, uh come down judy miller come on down judy miller come on down his head's just in the oven ah he's just like it's it's so and no, it is it is definitely a very bizarre series and i i don't know if you'd agree with this but like the other thing that makes it really weird is um I mean, I think it uses a very different color palette than oh, yeah, the movies yeah. do, especially yeah. the dream sequences. Like at times mm -hmm. I felt like I was watching like a Dario Argento movie, Circus yeah. Asperia. And uh, I think the other thing too, is I kind of wonder how involved New Line was in the series, because I get the impression they were just like, hey, Lorimar, you do all this and, and we'll reap the benefits of it. Um, but it, it's a very weird anthology because a lot of anthologies look cheaply made but i don't know there's something like extra cheesy at times oh yeah about freddy's yeah. nightmares like yeah. compared to friday the 13th the series oh, or monsters yeah. or yeah freddy's nightmares is like a it's like a cable access show filming of a playhouse performance in hell Oh my like, God, that's such a good definition. Like, because they're just, they're, they're so weird and so quirky and they had good talent behind a lot of the episodes, but there was an attitude of like, whatever you can do whatever you want. Mick Garris even mentioned that when they were doing it, it was like, if you wanted to write one, you could, if yeah. you wanted to direct one, you could, as long as you stayed within the schedule um, and stayed within the budget, they didn't really care. Um, I always joke. This is not based on any information. This is just my assumption. But I I think that Lorimar and New Line had to put up half the money each 
And I think New Line didn't actually put up any money. I think that they just did every episode for whatever Lorimar had to front. Uh, because I've heard of other show business stories where that's happened, not related to New Line, but where two organizations agree to split the cost and then one doesn't actually put the money up. So, I, I, I mean, that makes me wonder if that's part of why it's so cheap. But they were, yeah, they were just pounding it out. We, I joked in uh, one of the episodes uh, when Bob Shea plays the... <laughs> He plays the priest, priest in, a, in a funeral scene. And I was like, oh, well, this at least proved Bob Shea knew this show existed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I think, too, like we've discussed before, is um, they, they knew what they were making. They, they weren't going and shooting for the moon. Like, they, they were fully aware of the content. They were fully aware of, of what they were producing for television. Well, and they were told, like, this is for midnight. Do whatever you want. Yeah. Well, that's that the other thing that's so weird about the show for me, because, I mean, I, I, I've seen episodes like... Um, Love stinks and 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 the aforementioned black tickets with Brad Pitt. And the themes they're dealing with are very like teenage oriented. Mm -hmm. uh, in a weird way, the show almost reminds me of like, are you afraid of the dark or goosebumps? Except it's really gory. It's not a kid's show. So yes. it has this like kid's show feel at <laughs> yeah. times, especially with the acting at times and the oh, reaction yeah. oh, yeah. shots. Yep. But it's also like gory as all get out. It's it's very bizarre. You know. You know. A side note. Uh, have you seen? Have you seen Night of the Demons three? Yes, actually, I have. That film is literally an Are You Afraid of the Dark episode, <laughs> but with tits and blood. <laughs> like, watch that with that in mind. Like, the art direction is the same as Are You Afraid of the Dark. It's shot in the same part of Canada as Are You Afraid of the Dark. It, it has some of the actors well, from Are You Afraid cues. of the Dark. Yeah, I've been waiting for a Blu-ray release of Night I, of the I Demons 3 for years. <laughs> I figured at least Canada would get one and we could import it, but so far not. No well, hell, we got one, two, and the remake, but no Blu-ray of three. <laughs> Come on, people. We need you. <laughs> yeah. So, so far you've covered the first three episodes. Uh, are there any favorite episodes that you guys have? Uh, or, or how would you recommend for people that are going to watch this on Tubi after listening to this episode, their first diving in, where do you recommend they start? Dave, what do you think? I, I would say, honestly, because we, we had a really good discussion on our first episode because the first episode is the pilot, which has the origin of Freddy. Yeah, it's it's without a doubt like the best episode. I mean, as far as like for Freddy fans, because yeah. it's the actual origin story. But, and um, Toby I, Hooper directed it. Yes, yeah, he did. Yeah. Yeah. Texas and Chainsaw say, Man himself. Yeah, yeah <laughs> and he did such a good job with that episode. But I would say, honestly, like watching it in any order you choose isn't really going to matter to be perfectly honest yeah, there's there's a very very small degree of continuity yeah like minute in that there are occasionally episodes that are sequels to the prior episode like my sister's keeper is episode seven and it's a direct sequel to part to part the first one. episode yeah. yeah season uh one episode one so i mean i would recommend they jump in with episode one see freddie's backstory see how he started everything and just kind of go for that. I think that would be the way to do it. And there's an easy way too. If you if you want to see just the Freddy centric episodes, like we mentioned earlier, there's only eight of them, and you can find all of them. <laughs> but of course, the way I would recommend the most would be Freddy's Nightmares is such a bizarre show. Just listen to our podcast while you're driving or whatever, <laughs> and at the end of it, you'll know whether you want to actually see if we if we get, did it justice or not. Because even spoiling those shows. They are so weird yeah. and so fever dreamish. <laughs> no, 100%. Yeah, it's interesting, too, because um, there's some 
episodes that will call back to previous episodes. Yeah. yeah. So there's like one episode with Freddie called Photo Finish. And then, you know, like 10 episodes later, they make a reference to that, that same episode with like some of the characters, but it's not within the same episode. So it's like, they'll do callbacks like 10 episodes later. It's very strange. Yeah, it's almost like its own, you know, it, it reminds me of the Marvel Cinematic Universe before that yeah. was a thing. <laughs> Oh yeah, the Freddy CU, uh. <laughs> and they'll uh, they'll even go back to locations and stuff sometimes, and and use and use the same settings. What I love though most about it so far has been that there, Henrik and I have this joke where it's just we can't understand the financial status of the town of Springwood. The economics of Springwood, Ohio, <laughs> in the series make no sense. Like there's, it's a slummy place with like no kids, except the the high school is gargantuan. Gargantuan, yeah. And there's there are mansions everywhere. They've got a university, a medical school. <laughs> like it's just. <laughs> That's one of my favorite things to point out is like, because obviously you have to tell a story every week, they just keep building and building. Springwood is this thriving suburban metropolis. And I really want to know where all the rich people work. Oh, and I love the idea that there's there's certain episodes where fr- people will say like Freddy Krueger and some buddy will say like, who? And it's like, you fucking live but, in Springwood. But then there are other ones where people will be like, oh, Freddy Krueger. Yeah. But for the most part, yeah, people are like, who to what now? The what now? The who, the Fred of what? <laughs> It's uh, that's one of the great things as Springwood is whatever is convenient in that episode. Yeah. <laughs> and also like going back to that pilot episode, they, they make Freddie, they, they don't draw any lines with him in regards of him being a child murderer, like a vicious, hungry child murderer. Yeah, he's, he's child hungry and there is no, there's, there's no playing around. It's funny. It took broadcast television to be like, oh yeah, he's a pedophile and a murderer. <laughs> the movies would like dance around it. But then when it's on broadcast television, like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah he touches kids and kills them. Yeah, he's a ghost. <laughs> yeah, was the pilot the first time in the series that they'd really like, done a full origin story yeah, yeah. I, I believe so because i think the only thing that i could recall in regards of something close to that is the beginning of freddie versus jason where robert england has his narration yeah. and that's the closest that i can think to something like that yeah where they kind of show him before he became you know burned up mess yeah. <laughs> unlike part six where the the dream de- i want it all oh, <laughs> i thought we weren't gonna talk about the dream demons dave <laughs> For the record, uh, Freddy's Dead is one of my favorites. One of your favorites out of seven, eight? Come on, that's that's a cop out. It's got Alice it's Cooper. That's, that's pretty bold because it's I know Alice- so many people that bash oh, Freddy's yeah. Dead. I don't know. I find it fun. It's like uh, it's like if if you had like a, a Warner Brothers Bugs Bunny cartoon turned oh, yeah. into a Freddy Krueger movie. The biggest complaint I have the more I watch it is every time I go back to it, it's just like, oh, God, his makeup just looks worse and worse oh, yeah. every time I watch parts. No, six. it's and they just they don't like wet it at all. No. They don't put any moisture on it. They don't they, they light it head on. Yeah. They just. <laughs> but what other Freddy movie is he going to be flying on a broom as the Wicked Witch of the West? I mean, honestly, I would only expect to see. I'm positive we'll see that on Freddy's Nightmares because <laughs> some point. they just do everything on that show. I'm waiting for him to imp- do an impression of like Richard Nixon. Oh, it's gotta. It's come. gotta happen. It's gotta happen. I, I just start inventing ideas in my head. I'm like, I bet they have Freddie do that because they gotta have a minimum of three Freddie breaks every episode. So, they, oh man, I mean, come on, uh, you will never top it. Ain't over till the fat, fat lady, lady dies. dies. I don't know. The, his head in the oven is the, when that happened, and I immediately texted Henrik, and I was like, "You're not ready for this week's episode." <laughs> Dave usually watches them before I get around to it. 
because Dave does the heavier leg work um, multiple because, times. Yeah, because believe it or not, even though we're a bunch of, of, of dumb chuckleheads, uh, Dave watches the episode two or three times. He does a full breakdown. It's a very detailed show, and I watch it once because I have too many obligations and podcasts and stuff. <laughs> I watch it once and take my notes when I watch it. And then we just kind of put our powers together. And I don't know, as much as I enjoy the the, the Freddy's uh, Nightmare show, I think it would be masochistic for me to watch it three times in a row or whatever. <laughs> I would agree. I would agree. That's why it's Dave's job. It's not it's it's not bad because the initial watch, like I do what Henrik does too, where the initial watch is me taking my notes down in regards of like jokes that I that I come up with or something along those lines or just looking up the actors. Whereas on the second watch, I'm literally going through it all 46 minutes and writing out the summary, including exact lines of dialogue, exact sequences, all this stuff. And that's where it gets a little bit hectic. I well, would say. and that's why it'll always be your job. That's fair. And never be mine. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I guess we should talk about uh, how the series sort of acts as a, a first appearance or, or like a debut for a lot of different actors. It's, it's, you yeah. know, it's a who's who at times of, Hey, I, I know that actor. Wait, that's Brad Pitt. He's in a Nightmare on Elm Street show. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the, the weekly anthology show was the bread and butter of so many actors wanting to break in or simply just, you know, keep their SAG insurance yeah. or whatever. So you see a lot of journeymen. We And that's one of the things we like to do is we love to break down who's in the cast and who's in the crew because – Every now and then you'll be very surprised that someone went on to do a lot. I mean, Michael yeah. DeLuca is all over this show yeah. and he went on to become one of the heads of new line. And he was a writer on 50 shades of gray and tons of other like yeah. huge Hollywood blockbusters. So you never know, you know, who's going to walk through those doors because when you make a show like Freddy's nightmares in LA, you just, you know, you, you put out the talent callings. You say, we pay scale. It's a five days of work and it's 20 minutes from your front door <laughs> and people will do it. You know, they will. So I'm excited to see just how many people pop in, honestly, because so far we haven't had any huge celebrity no. uh, appearances. We had Lori Petty from Lori Lori Petty. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. So I'm curious to see how far we're going to go because I know Brad Pitt's coming Brad right Pitt's up. Coming, yeah. There's there's a few others that are. I mean, there's so many. <laughs> and I'm blanking on them right now. But like what I love in regards of doing the breakdown on the notes for the for the crew is like Henrik said, you've got people on there that started as doing effects and then they've gone to produce huge blog uh, blockbusters or you've got people that started out, you know, doing the music. And they've done the score for like three Lord of the Rings films and stuff like that. Like yeah. it's it's incredible where do these starts come from, and that also makes it fun to watch every week because you just kind of get to see oh who, who was doing this at this point oh my god what are they doing now <laughs> and how in many ways Freddy's Nightmares was a prelude yeah to what would become Tales from the Crypt because the first two seasons of Tales from the Crypt were horribly over budget and they were totally ready to cancel the show just on financial reasons. But they hired Gil Adler, Gil Adler, the man who produced all of Freddy's nightmares, and he came in and whipped that budget into shape. So from season three onward, it's really the guy who ran Freddy's nightmares is running Tales from the Crypt. Yeah. So and you can see some of it. You can kind of see some elements that they definitely borrowed and did, albeit much better, uh, in Tales from the Crypt. 
Because, I mean, uh, Tales from the Crypt had the same shooting schedule as Freddy's Nightmares, but it was half as long. Five days, if I remember correctly. Yeah, Freddy's Nightmares had five days, but yeah. it was a 44-minute thing. Yeah. Tales from the Crypt had five days, and it was 20 to 30 minutes. So it's crazy. It's crazy what place in history this show has, yet it just it doesn't have the level of appreciation. I mean, in part, it's because the quality is low, but I think more so it's the lack of ready availability. Yeah, availability. Like, for whatever reason, I'm sure it was a rights issue. That should have came out on DVD during the DVD boom. Mm-hmm. There should have just been a you know $35 box set in Best Buy yeah. in 2004 of Freddy's Nightmares, but there wasn't. No, and I think the only release we had as far as here goes was we had the VHS tapes that had yeah. an episode apiece, which I think there was five or six of them total. Overseas got, I think, maybe eight episodes of the first season. And other than that, I mean, yeah, it's just been the rare availability. And even the Chiller, um, even when it aired on Chiller, that I mean, Chiller only had it for like four years, I think. And then yeah. I mean, that was it. And then yeah, I think Screenbox... it even aired on, didn't it also air on uh, Robert Rodriguez's network? El Rey. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. it was on El Rey. And I, I, I have a memory that I think it might, there might have been a time where it was also airing on FX, like when FX would do the Friday 13th marathons. Like, I feel like I remember Freddy's Nightmares being a part, I, but I don't, I don't know. That. I don't yeah. recall that at all. But no, um, but yeah, the availability. I think was a big thing for because the, the podcast literally started by I came over to Hendrix and he looks at me and goes, so you want to do a Freddy's Nightmares podcast? <laughs> and that was exactly how it went down. I figured if we're going to put ourselves through such an interesting challenge, which is fun, yeah, we may as well get something more out of it and share it with fans. Exactly. Uh, because that's one thing, you know, I've, I've spent a lot of time doing a lot of podcasting, but I haven't done anything strictly about fandom. And, and I fun. wanted to, and fun. Yeah. And I wanted to jump into something like that, something where if somebody's a huge Freddy Krueger fan like I am, they can go, wow, I'm going to learn about this for the first time because I'm most of these episodes I haven't seen. I've seen maybe eight or nine before we started. Yeah. So it's like most of these are brand new to me. So it's very exciting to talk about brand new Freddy content for 44 <laughs> weeks in a row. <laughs> yeah, it's wild, too, because uh, there's if, if for people that are horror movie fans, there's a lot of appearances by, you know, just specifically horror movie stars. Yeah. You know, I, I think this may be the only show where I you'll see Brad Pitt and Bill Mosley together in a scene, you know. Uh, and also Jeffrey Combs is an insane cannibalistic uh, Italian chef. Yeah, I remember that episode. I'm looking forward to oh my God, cover he just that unlocked one. a memory. <laughs> I, I, I'm going to try to get Jeff to talk with us. Awesome. I did a movie with, with Jeff Combs once, so I, I do have his info. What movie did you do with uh, Jeff Combs? Um, I produced a film called uh, uh, Age of Stone and Sky, The Warrior Beast. It's uh, on Tubi right now. Um, so you search The Warrior Beast. It's a it's a fantasy movie I did. And uh, Jeff Combs is in it. Corey Feldman's in it. It's one of the one of the bigger flicks I've produced. And Jeff Combs was like the coolest dude to work with ever super nice you got denny's with him i went well yeah i mean i didn't want to i didn't want to give up all my secrets but yeah jeff combs and i went to denny's he's a good guy and uh and we've stayed in touch so i'm gonna try to maybe see if he would sit down and talk about i don't know if you really want to talk about being on freddy's nightmares but i'm gonna ask him I'll, i'll send him a text and be like hey bro you know Hey, bro. I'm not going to call him bro. <laughs> he's, he's probably so. I, I, I wonder if anyone will like go up to him at a convention and ask about Freddy's nightmares. It's probably just like, uh, you, you could have asked me about Reanimator or From Beyond, but you asked about Freddy's. See, what made, what made he and I click as friends right away was I only wanted to ask about Deep Space Nine. And he was pumped to talk about being on Deep Space Nine. So. <laughs> 
I mean, I love them in everything else, but Deep Space Nine is the thing. Star Trek Deep Space Nine. That's the thing for me. Although Freddy's Nightmares will be the next thing. Yeah, sure. there we go. <laughs> so uh, the next episode, that's going to be, you, you guys, the next episode is right in time for Halloween. It's a Halloween-themed episode. That's right? correct. Freddy's Tricks and Treats. Yes. It'll be out next tu- next Tuesday? Is yeah. Next yeah, Tuesday? Yeah, so. next yep. Tuesday. Uh, every Tuesday we're releasing one. We don't intend to miss any Tuesdays. We've been recording these ahead. That way, if something happens, like last week I yeah. went on that trip to the Freddy Fest and everything, that way we could take a week off and never miss much of anything. Although it is weird because like an episode will release and then we'll have to remember, oh, wait, that was a month ago. Yeah. <laughs> and the one thing that I can say about uh, Freddy's Tricks and Treats that's not really a spoiler is freddy is such uh, this is a freddy centric episode yeah. and he lays it all out i mean like there <laughs> there are so many great freddy moments in this episode and also it features uh you know going back to your thing about celebrities a very young uh, mariska hargity from yes. law and order yeah and that's a that's a great one because literally it's the only time you'll ever get freddy krueger on halloween yes it's the only time you'll ever get it and and that's a pretty wonderful gift. That's awesome. You know, like to have a character walking to a morgue with a security guard and him going, this whole town is haunted by Freddy Krueger. And you're like, oh, man. Oh, man, I'm feeling like an 11-year-old nerd. <laughs> oh, man, I'm so excited. <laughs> and by the release of our episode so far, I would say that's probably the sleaziest one that'll come out yet. <laughs> the second half is just... Like it's a zero sleaze on the first half and eighty-five yeah. percent sleaze on the second. Yeah, there's some voyeurism in the second half, is how yes. I was. buddy. <laughs> oh my gosh! I, yeah, that's that's one of the things because there's like without any spoilers. Not that I mean, it, yeah. Uh, <laughs> but like this woman goes through all this trauma and then it goes to the commercial and then it comes back and she's just stripping, stripping and stripping in front of two guys outside the window. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. And, 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 but I remember because like, that was my first note. I was just like, ah, yes, that's what I was thinking. This was missing as well. Striptease <laughs> right after the trauma. Mm, very oh, good. Very gosh. good. It's so it's such a cool experience. Sorry. Oh, I, I was going to say, um, what do you think about this? Now that it's on Screenbox and Tubi, do you think more people are discovering it for the first time? They they really Definitely. are. Um, so as part of you know, promoting this and also just my general nerddom, I've joined uh, even more Nightmare on Elm Street and Freddy Krueger groups. Yeah. <laughs> and I see a lot of people posting screen caps from the TV series and then people going like, I've never seen that. And then everybody going, it's on Tubi mm-hmm. and like everybody getting all excited. So I think that this is definitely people are starting to realize like this is kind of the holy grail, the last piece of Freddy media that you've never consumed. And, there's and it so actually looks good now. Yeah, and yeah, it, it no, doesn't look like a total the, piece of crap. The best it's looked by far, and honestly, too, it's the when it it went off Screenbox recently, um, and yeah, I think so Tubi, just on Tubi, yeah, right Tubi now. has the exclusivity of it now, and um, it has made watching it very accessible at at anywhere. I mean, if you have a smartphone or anything like that, you can literally pull it up. Well, and and I'm such a nerd. I I almost exclusively watch the show after midnight yeah. because that's just when I do work. And having probably actually prefer on Tubi rather than Screenbox too, because yeah. now you get the commercials on. Yeah, and that's yeah. kind of the best part too, is you get commercial breaks. So I'll be sitting there and be like, "Wow, that was really sleazy." And then it's like, "Oh, okay, uh, allergy medicine commercial." <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it, it's kind of a better experience. Yeah. Well, I think one of the best ones. I can't remember if I told you this or not. One of my commercials during it was a sleep aid. <laughs> that's beautiful. <laughs> I would have remembered that if that <laughs> happened when I was watching Sleep Aid. That's so good. <laughs> so before we start wrapping up, um, 
Henrik, uh, what else do you have that you're working on? Um, last time I had you on, we, we talked about Boggy Creek, and now I, I think you have a series called Found Footage. Yeah, so I just completed a series as a creator, showrunner, and I directed two of the eight episodes called Found Footage, the series. It's like Creep Show or Tales from the Crypt, but with a found footage bent, so it's got kind of that style of paranormal activity and things like that. Right now, it's exclusively available on DVD and Blu-ray, but we're working on the streaming deal right now. Uh, it will most likely be on streaming in the next two months. Uh, we're not sure where yet, so I can't really give that out. But if you give a search to found footage of the series, you could probably find some cool information. And if you are the physical media type and you would want to take a shot at an eight episode indie series, you can find it at henflixflix.com. And uh, we've been really happy with the way people are responding to it. Um, uh, it was kind of our, it was our qu quarantine, quarantine project. It was something we pulled together during lockdown and then as time progressed i was like oh god there's another episode oh god we're doing another episode oh god we're doing another episode and then finally this year i was like we just we got to eight we're done like we're done <laughs> we're putting it out so uh and so far people are digging it so we, we we've got that going on uh my podcast weekly spooky it's has really grown a lot it's a scary story and true crime podcast we recently expanded to doing two shows a week instead of one and that's been going really really awesome um, and as far as production goes, finally, after all this time, I mean, all I'm really working on in the movie space is Babysitter Massacre 2, which was horribly, horribly derailed by the pandemic and all of the things that that entails. So we're, we're, we're getting to a lot of cool stuff. What, what has uh, the filmmaking process been like uh, during the pandemic? Like, what, how, how did you work on things like found footage uh, and whatnot uh, during the pandemic? Like what? What, what, how did you deal with the pandemic as an artist? I guess is what I'm asking. Sure. A lot of the episodes. So I directed two of them. Um, we had six directors over eight episodes. So I directed two. my writing partner, Dan Wilder directed two, and then Eric Whiting did one. Andrew Shearer did one. Joe Salmo did one and Tim Castle did one. And basically we all had roughly the same idea. They, they had minimal cast. Uh, some of the cast in some of the episodes were, over like zoom or something like that. It just depended on the story they were telling. And a lot of them would be two person stories. Often the directors found themselves in them because we were all trying to, you know, be around the least amount of people possible. So it was kind of, I've always believed that when you have major and massive restrictions, you make the story make sense for the restrictions. And then it feels like there's nothing wrong at all. You know, I don't think anyone's going to watch that and be like, huh? They're over the internet because it matches the story why they're over the internet or huh there's only two of them because it matches the story why there are only two people so it was a really cool storytelling challenge because i had done a, a film right when lockdown was ending uh i did a western that's supposed to come out probably the start of next year called jesse james unchained and we did that like right when the pandemic or when the lockdown was ending and literally we shot two days and then there was a massive surge in infections mm -hmm. and we had to shut down production and wait. So uh, yeah, it, that was a real challenge and really unpleasant. And then I got COVID and got really, really sick and I had to finish the film while suffering from long COVID. So that was a whole, a whole deal. And I don't recommend it at all. <laughs> Yeah, I, I was going to ask, what do you think of um, just the state of indie filmmaking right now? Um, I, I asked because uh, it was fascinating. Yesterday I was watching, um, it, it just got released, this new Friday the 13th fan film called um, Friday the 13th Vengeance. 
part two. And I was so surprised because they got all the actors from all the other yeah. Friday the 13th movies, like CJ Graham and um, uh, Tom Matthews. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, I was thinking to myself, wow, these fan films, they're so different from what I used to see in 2004. Yeah, yeah. I remember there was a Freddy versus Ghostbusters fan film <laughs> and it did not look that great. I enjoyed yeah. it, but did not look that great. But now you can find a fan film that looks as good as some of those old Friday the 13th movies, if not better. And, um, and I think it's true really of indie one. films in general. Yeah, every now and then I'll find a really great one too. Like I love Don't Hike Alone and Don't Hike Alone in the Snow. I love Never Hike Alone. Yeah, yeah. Never Hike Alone, thank you. Yeah, that was those were great. Um, uh, every now and then I'll put on, I'll do a search for fan films and we'll see what we find. That we do. Um, sometimes, you know, your result, your mileage varies, but <laughs> some of them are really awesome. What do you, like, what, what do you think has led to, I guess, indie films looking as good as they do now? Like, is it, is it just the camera equipment is better or it's, I've it's, always wondered about the technical aspect. Sure. It, well, it's technology, but not just in cameras and lights. It's in the technology that's in your pocket that allows you to, for free, learn how to use a camera, learn how to use a microphone, learn how to use uh, any of these number of things, have access to all the films uh, of the world to an extent at the press of a button. That's why I think we have such an advanced space for filmmaking we do i will say and and not to get negative but there is the only negative is that sometimes there isn't enough craft and i'm not saying that about any specific fan film or anything it's just that's the hardest thing to learn is the craft of filmmaking it's funny that you say that because uh you know two months ago i had fred olin ray on and i had, i had actually mentioned you because he, he speaks very highly of you since you've worked with him before and he said you know he said the same thing a lot of people today don't know craft or they think they can just make a movie without having any idea of the components that have to come together for a movie to work. Yeah. And that's the thing. Cause, and, and, and I don't want that to be discouraging. You can learn craft, you know, uh, technical details, like how to use a camera, how to use lights. You can learn all of that. Being an inherently strong storyteller is harder to learn. So if you have a story to tell and you want to tell it, figuring out how to point a camera, figuring out how to frame a shot, figuring out how to set a light up, figuring out how to get good sound. You can learn all of it. So that is not meant to be discouraging. I do, but I do think some people, because you don't, you, you know, these cameras now it's incredible, the low light capability, but so they could just put up the camera with no lights and film and it'll look okay, but it won't look like a movie in the way we understand it. So, uh, but there are examples where they've done a really good job. Like I, I like bodies, bodies, bodies mm -hmm. where half, half the film is just them with their cell phone flashlights. It looks awesome, super good. But I think that they had really good craft behind it. So yeah, I, I think that that's the case, but I also think that it's just a matter of experience and care. So, you know, if somebody's making a fan film, I can't imagine that they've made, especially fan films. I can't imagine they've made like 30 of them. So I'd like to see their fifth or sixth movie. I bet you their craft will progress massively and I'll be very impressed. Uh, I, I want to get back to Freddy's nightmares, but uh, since you mentioned it, um, I have to see bodies, bodies, bodies. I believe that's one of, is that one of the uh, new a 24 films? Yes. Yeah. I, I was going to ask, I'm just curious what you think about it because I know you love the horror genre. Uh, what do you think about this whole debate people are having, I guess about, Elevated horror. I knew, oh, question. I knew oh, that was going to be the question. And David, I'd love your thoughts on it. Too. Oh, no, you, no, Dave, leave. No, uh, 
<laughs> no, uh, you know, Dave, you start. All right. Um, <laughs> you here's the shovel. The best the the best way that I that I can say this is what Joe Bob Briggs said. I think it was on his last special. Yeah. Was that horror isn't there's there's no there's no indication of, of elevated horror in exactly of what that definition means because it's still horror. And I think as much as I love films like the Vich and uh, Midsummer and hereditary, I mean, all a 24 films, if I remember correctly too, um, they're just horror films. I mean, they, 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 while they feel special in regards to their storytelling, nothing about them to me makes it seem like elevated horror really is a thing because they're all just stories that we're used to but they're told in a different way and what i love most about those films is that they aren't really quick on tension they're slow building on a lot of it and i kind of like that dread build but also we can argue that they're not fun films in regards of that dread and that's kind of what i like the return to horror on those but as far as elevated horror goes it's all horror to me i don't really see a, a big difference with it personally and and for me, I mean, I have never had a problem with the those films. Mm -hmm. Like, I didn't like Midsummer that much, but that's just me. Yeah, I yeah. For me, it's not it's not the films themselves. I just I kind of don't like the label elevated yeah. horror no, I agree. because I it, it's very ambiguous. And I don't know. Someone said to me, "Oh, well, it's 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 like horror movies with metaphors." <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, but a lot of horror movies have metaphors in yeah. them. Yeah, you the know? most. Yeah, that's why it's annoying because. It's it's saying elevated horror to the most subversive genre of film that's ever existed. Yeah, it's I, I said to someone recently, I, I don't know, uh, elevated horror for me, you, uh, you can go all the way back to like Carnival of Souls. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that. yeah, people because subtext works really well in horror because fear is such a normal part of existence and it's such a normal thing to ignore and not face because it's unpleasant. So, I, I mean, I do. I think Joe Bob was right when he said elevated horror is just what people who don't normally like horror movies call horror movies they like. Yeah. I'm going to go with that. I'm going to go with JB on this one. I think he nailed it pretty well. I think that the people who say elevated horror in a sneering way, I think they're just feeling a little uh, insulted it's, because lots of the film, lots of their favorite horror films are very heady. Yeah. And the thing, the thing that I personally don't like about the labeling of it is you, you're making a click for yourself. It almost, it's it's kind of like you're like, oh well, I'm the elevated horror fan. Is is what it comes off well, to me. As. I've only met one person like that, and that was at your house. <laughs> I think I know exactly who you're talking. about. Was that your about. birthday party? Yep, I know exactly who you're talking about. <laughs> She yeah, I, I was gonna say I, I'll leave it at, at uh, we'll, we'll 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 cut the elevated or part of the conversation off after this. But for me, it just comes off as like the label itself. There's like, it, I, I mean, this may not be the right word for it, but there's like, so I find it like weirdly classist. Like, mm -hmm. oh, th yeah. this is for yeah. the like highbrow people yeah. that go to you know art school, which you know I like art house type cinema too, but. I, I don't know. I just don't like the snootiness, I guess. Yeah. Well, I, I, and I couldn't be more anti-snooty. I mean, I will fight to the death and defend to the death. Boo, uh, Medea Halloween. Cause I love Medea. I really do. I find those movies incredibly amusing, incredibly entertaining. Um, and I don't care if people don't think they're good. I love them. So yeah, I have no, I have no qualms about 
uh, defending anything I like, whether people think it's lowbrow or highbrow. And there's lots of great highbrow stuff. And and most of the A24 output's been really good. Yeah. Uh, really solid storytelling, really great filmmaking, and really risk-taking release strategies to get those in front of so many people. And I love that. I love that they're not assuming their audience is stupid. That's yeah. an, uh, That's a great sign for horror. So real quick with uh, regards to Freddy's nightmares, uh, I guess, what do you think the legacy of not just Freddy's nightmares, but also uh, just Freddy Krueger in general is uh, within pop culture? Like, let's talk a little bit about that. And, you know, I, do you think we're ever going to see another Nightmare on Elm Street movie? Hmm. What do you think, Dave? I, I know Jason Blum just came out and said, you know, oh, I can get anyone to come back. You know, I got Ellen Bernstein to come back for uh, the new Exorcist that David Gordy Green's doing. Robert Young, he's 75. That's young. I can get him to come back. But I don't know. I don't know if we're going to see another Robert England Freddy. I don't. Yeah. I feel like Robert's gone on record and said that he's not going to put on the makeup again. Yeah, um, that's no, I think I think he's openly times, said that. Yeah. Jason Blum is kind of teasing people. But yeah. I think I think the potential for a Nightmare on Elm Street is is always going to be there because I mean it's a property that's very popular and they could easily make money off of it. But I mean we saw what happened with the 2010. Yeah, yeah. And I'm not trying to be I'm not trying to be negative. What, what are you talking about? There was a 2010 Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh <laughs> I'm not trying to be negative <laughs> on it, but um Henrik and I actually just recently revisited it like 2-3 years ago and kind of the same thing we did with the Friday 13th remake as well. We both were of the same opinion where it was like, yeah, it was it was OK, but it wasn't great. And then when we watched both films again, we're like, oh, yeah, we don't we don't like these. Yeah, we didn't like them very much, you know, and I always I always I always feel like when I don't like a movie that I failed the movie. So <laughs> it so it was rough because I really wanted to like them on a review. So I, but as far as like another Freddy Krueger, whether literally or figuratively, I don't see that level of fandom mm -mm. happening again i think that that's a once in a lifetime kind of thing to have somebody start in a low budget horror movie and then become the biggest name in the world for like 10 years i feel like the closest we've gotten to that and honestly it wasn't even really that close has been uh the most recent uh it chapter one and chapter two with pennywise i feel like pennywise has kind of gotten a second life out of those films yeah but he's you know he's gonna be in like two movies yeah you know i mean but, i'm just saying like, no i go but but more so for the notoriety of it i just think yeah it's hard to make another character like freddy krueger today i think yeah well and and we're not as homogenous as a society about entertainment either like like people who are listening to this podcast it's a niche thing they enjoy people who listen to my podcast it's a niche thing they enjoy the world is made of so many more niche things people can enjoy now and so much less you know there aren't uh, 15 TV channels anymore, yeah. you know, it, that kind of thing. So I think that it spreads the audience out a little bit thinner too. So you just won't get the, you know, 45 million people tuning in for Freddy Krueger. Yeah. And I just don't think it's, I don't think that's the world for, it. I think that it was a right time, right place, right person. Cause Robert Englund ate it up. Yeah. He enjoyed it so much. And that's a big element too. Well, and it goes back to it again of, uh, we discussed this on our first episode, I feel like Freddy Krueger is like one of the only characters that could have had an anthology series because it's like, you yeah, know, yeah. I mean, Michael Myers doesn't talk. Neither does Jason at <laughs> Leatherface makes squealing noises. Yeah, he just squeals. And I mean, the only other two you've got left would be like Chucky and Leprechaun at that point. I could see Chucky's Chucky's Tales of Terror. You know? Chucky's Toy Box of Terror. Chucky's Toy Box of Terror. <laughs> oh, man. Oh, it, there's somebody at the door with a bag of money. Oh, it's Don oh. Mancini. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's interesting in that regard. I'm curious, since you mentioned it earlier, uh, you know, the Freddy Krueger character, he is like this child murderer. So I've always wondered, why do you think so many people resonate with this character? And he even gets turned into a fun character that everyone loves, even though, I mean, this is a child murdering pedophile. Like what, why do you think that happened? Why did he become this like icon that we almost root for in these movies? Oof. Well, I, a question. I, a big one is part three. Yeah, because part three, it, it, I, I just recently just really recently rewatched it. And part three is almost like a reboot of Nightmare on Elm Street. It kind of starts it over, but with a little reference to the first film. And it really makes it really leans into the fantastical element of Freddy and, and into the fun of Freddy. And I think that people like scary characters that make them laugh because it makes you feel kind of safe in your, your fun being scared. Kind of like the Crypt Keeper. He's a very scary looking puppet, but John Kassir's voice mm-hmm. and the writing, it makes you, it makes you chuckle, puns. you know, because there's another guy that uh, uh, the Crypt Keeper was massively marketed, yeah. massively merchandised. Everyone seemed to love him. Both had albums. They both, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, well, Freddie's Greatest Hits, versus tales from the crypt have yourself a scary, scary little, little christmas, christmas. Woo. Woo. uh so i i mean i i don't know though i think i really think that it was a special lightning strike and and it didn't hurt that robert england is incredibly likable yeah and i think that as he came out of freddie more than what wes craven had come up with originally you know when they started deepening his voice less and they started doing all these things less and letting him be more just robert england being robert england i think that may have been the big thing i think he kind of seduced everybody with his charm and his sense of humor no definitely and i i think i think that's why it's so hard for people to imagine anyone other than robert england yeah as freddie krueger i mean freddie was his big role but i remember him from other um, shows at the time like he, you know i i always associate robert england for some reason with v, v. you yeah. know <laughs> i loved v group and he plays like the one good alien in it and it's like a complete 180 from what he does with freddy krueger so i mean he's a very versatile actor in a lot of ways and i think he doesn't get enough credit at times just for how successful that character was no i agree i agree i think that he is the special sauce without a doubt so in closing how can my listeners uh keep up with the podcast welcome to prime time freddy's nightmares and uh the rest of your work henrik and uh david well believe it or not they can find our show by going to freddy's nightmares.com because no one owned it so i bought it (laughs) (laughs) so if they go to freddy's nightmares.com they can subscribe there or they can subscribe on their favorite podcasting app just search either welcome to prime time or freddy's nightmares and you'll find us right away and that's the place to go. We're going to be publishing every week for 44 weeks, maybe even more if more. we get some guest people. I'm working on it. I, I'm trying to pull some of my showbiz strings <laughs> to try and get a few people who are involved on. But uh, so that's where you can get Freddy's Nightmares, the podcast of you, ours. You know who I would love to hear from, to be honest, is um, I don't even know if he does interviews, though, is uh, I think Kevin Yeager did the makeup effects for it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah, he did yeah. Freddy's makeup and, on that uh, show. I can, yeah. I can tell you, uh, Kevin Yeager has recently just appeared on, uh, Gil Adler is doing a podcast with Al Katz uh, called the uh, How Not to Make a Movie podcast. And they had Kevin Yeager, John Cassier, and both of them on uh, for an episode recently. So yeah, he's definitely doing interviews. We're going to yeah, try that. For people that don't know, more. Kevin did the Crypt Keeper. Uh, he worked yeah. on Child's Place. So they had some like real great talent involved with the show. Absolutely. Yeah. 
So yeah, it, yeah, we're gonna we're gonna try and see if we can pull those strings. Would love to. So and and as far as everything else uh, that I'm working on, you could check out my website, which is incrediblyhandsome.com. Another web address that I had to own the moment I realized nobody else had it. Um, you can uh, grab my name from the show notes and search me on Tubi and find a ton of films that I've directed available to watch for free with commercials. And uh, yeah. And, and also we should know you don't just do you don't just do horror movies like for I have a lot of listeners that aren't as into the horror sure. uh, movies as I am. But you've done stuff like Depression, the movie and yeah. uh, different quirky comedies too. Yeah, right? I have comedies, dramas, westerns, family friendly fair. I've done a whole lot of stuff. So and it's all almost all of it's on Tubi right now. So if you just punch my name in, my name is unusual enough. You'll find my stuff <laughs> right away. It. Yeah. I, I should ask too before you go. Uh, what's your thoughts on um on on Tubi generally? Uh, because I know a lot of filmmakers that are really a lot of independent filmmakers that say, yeah, they've treated me well when I've had like movies released on there. Yeah, Tubi's been phenomenal. They've been a very good content partner. They've handled not only a bunch of those the films, but they handled uh, my TV series Popcorn Fodder, where I hosted movies. Um, and that's caused a massive influx of new viewers. I got recognized when I was at the Mahoning drive-in by some guy in line to get popcorn. He had watched me on popcorn fodder. I was my that's mind. That's how you know you've made it. <laughs> it was very <laughs> awesome. So Tubi's been truly a blessing. Uh, truly. So Dave, you, what were oh, you going to say? Uh, you can find me on Instagram at David's watching movies again. And that's basically where I post all my nerd stuff that Henrik and I do. <laughs> yeah, Dave is the nerd of the hour. <laughs> and also every guest that I'm having on this Halloween season, I I'm going to end each episode, hopefully with the question that is on everyone's mind. You don't have to answer it if you don't want to. Halloween ends. Thumbs up, thumbs down. Two thumbs Big up. Thumbs up. I just, saw for, I just saw it for a second time yesterday. I loved it. I'm seeing it a second time this weekend, and I'm waiting on my novelization. Yeah, I, I loved it so much. <laughs> okay, and thank you again, Henrik and David, for coming on Parallax Views. Everyone check out Welcome to Primetime, a retrospective of Freddy's Nightmares. Thank you so thank much you. for having us, man. Well, that does it for this spooky season edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed my conversations with Jason Brooks on Friday the 13th Vengeance Part 2 Bloodlines, a brand new Friday the 13th fan film that you can watch on YouTube. And of course, my conversation with Henrik Couteau and David DeNoyer of Welcome to Primetime a Freddy's Nightmares Retrospective podcast. As always, if you appreciate the work here I do at Parallax Views, please, please, please consider supporting me on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax. You don't really know much about Halloween. You thought no further than the strange custom of having your children wear masks and go out begging for candy. It 
It was the start of the year in our old Celtic lands, and we'd be waiting in our houses of wattles and clay. The barriers would be down, you see, between the real and the unreal. And the dead might be looking in to sit by our fires of turf. Halloween. The festival of Samhain. The last great one took place 3,000 years ago when the hills ran red with the blood of animals and children. Sacrifices are part of our world, our craft. Witchcraft? To us, it was a way of controlling our environment. It's not so different now. It's time again. In the end, we don't decide these things, you know. The planets do. They're in alignment. And it's time again. The world's going to change tonight, Doctor. I'm glad you'll be able to watch it. And... Happy Halloween.